everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. Today's podcast is called Reforming Urban India. I'll share a little bit of a background as to why I decided to do this podcast. We live in the 21st century and the history of the human race is all about living in cities, starting from the Indus Valley civilization in the case of this landmass that we are living in. Uh, as per current archaeological records, before somebody gets all Graham Hancocky on me, uh, just for the record, as of now, Indus Valley is the oldest archaeological evidence of urban conglomerates in this landmass to current day. And uh, you know, cities are just a part of our life. And we, we don't even realize whether they are good or bad or how important they are. And then I, I decided, let's do a podcast about it. And then... Uh, as always, I, I tend to go to a few people and then they said Ki, the best people to talk to are uh, the good folks at Artha Global. That is Ruben Abraham and Pratika Hingurani. And now I have with me Pratika and Ruben. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kushal. So, so maybe we can start over here. Could you guys tell a little bit about Artha Global? And, and for the record, uh, uh, Pratika is the uh, India CEO for Artha Global and Ruben is the global uh, Artha Global CEO. Uh, so Ruben, maybe we can start here. Please tell everyone what Artha Global is and then Pratika can also jump in and tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so Kushal, uh, thank you very much for having us on the show. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a great pleasure. So um, just very quickly, so a bunch of us used to be um, the team at um, IDFC Institute, which was a uh, research think tank that was set up by IDFC, which is India's largest infrastructure financing company that then went on to uh, spin out a bank that most of you have heard of, IDFC First Bank. Now, um, all of our work while we were at IDFC Institute was focused on India, on a certain bunch of issues, of which urban was probably one of the most important pillars of the work we had done. Um, and then, thanks to a bunch of circumstances, including the fact that um, IDFC was going through a major corporate restructuring, um, and we had been sort of asking ourselves this question of, is the work we have only relevant to India or does it have salience outside of India? And uh, we just basically took that opportunity to uh, take the team that was part of IDFC Institute and start a new organization that would be headquartered in London. And we our uh, other big office was in uh, Mumbai. And so the idea behind it was we have a range of things that we've already done and demonstrated in India, we wanted to take it elsewhere. That was the idea behind it. And uh, I would say that still, even today, that about 80% of our work is still focused on India, but we are hoping that uh, gradually the international portfolio will increase. Uh, as of now, we've done work in places as varied as the Philippines, uh, uh, Singapore, we've done, we've been starting up some work in, the, in Rwanda. So it's just sharing of experiences from the Indian context elsewhere. And then Pritika can briefly just talk about what we do in India. Sure. Thanks, Rubin. And thanks, Kushal, for having us. Um, and so one of the other things we also did was we took the opportunity to look at the breadth of work that we've done and organize our work into six different centers. The largest of which, like Rubin said, is the Center on Emerging Cities. So the six pieces of work are a center on cities, a center on public health that's very closely allied with what we do on cities. So a lot of that right now 
and the focus of our work in India presently is helping non-attainment cities achieve their uh, air pollution targets, bringing technical capacity to bear to help them. Um, we've got a center on technology and innovation. We have a center on access to justice. We're setting up a brand new center called the Center for Rapid Insights um, that will work to generate fast frequency data you know, in a landscape where you know, survey data is obviously hard, hard and expensive to collect, and then a center on inclusive growth. So that's how we've organized our work. Again, largely focused on India, but also globally based on what we've done so far. All right. So we talk about reforming under uh, uh, urban India as the title of the podcast. So obviously we're assuming uh, being urban matters. And uh, as they say in old adage is that Houston, we have a problem. So we will say Mumbai or Delhi, we have a problem. Uh, that's why we need to reform it. But before that, maybe we start the premise itself. Uh, and let me share why I'm bringing this. Because there's a lot of confusion as to what it means to be urban in India from a definitional perspective. Now, three pieces of research that I came across in, in my studies was, one is the recent illumination-based report by Dehija et al., where Vivek, I think it was Vivek Dehija and them who shared the research looking at the illuminations uh, across India. And they, they said that 60% uh, above, I think in the in their research, it was either 63% or 67%. Please don't quote me. I, I, I have forgotten the exact number that is urban. The government of India is on completely another level. They have a different uh, criteria. They say, I think either 33 or 35% of India is only urban. Then if I remember the gentleman's name correctly, it was Chinme Tumbe or something of Chaitanya Tumbe. I don't remember the it was something from C that I remember. That that research said it was 47 to 48% urban. So now, where do we begin with over here, Pritika and Ruben both? So Pritika, you can answer first. How what percentage of India is urban? <laughs> that I I you know, that, that's a very big decision to make. Um and, and, and Ruben can get into the details. I think at least the premise of our work was to say, so look, how urban India is depends on what definition we use, right? And I think that, so the official definition, uh, actually there are two official definitions. There is the statutory definition, which is what uh, state governments decide. And then there is the, and every state uses its own definition. And then there's the census definition, right? Which is uniformly applied across the country. And that is 31% urban. And as we like to say, the difference between just those two percentages, 25 and 31%, is 55 million people, right? So that's the population of, of South Africa, of South Korea, it's a large population. And the reason that that difference is important is because if you are, if you, when you are classified as urban under the statutory definition, you get uh, an urban local body, you get urban services, fire safety departments, building codes. Um, when you're not classified, as such, you are um, essentially governed by rural local bodies that don't have the mandate to provide these basic services, right? urban services. And so think of it even within the within the bounds of the Indian definition, you've got 55 million people that live at the density of, of, of a city, but don't get these services. Um, so, so I think our starting point, and Ruben can illuminate some of what we've done, is not that the actual percentage matters, but that sort of all other global definitions, right? So we looked around the world, we looked at countries like Ghana, like Mexico, Venezuela. If you use pretty much any other definition, India is well over 47% of them. 
So whether it's 50 or 60 doesn't matter. It's just that we're much more urban than we think. So, so uh, Kushal, um, I think I think it's also interesting to get into the subnational piece of this. Yeah. So what Pritika described was the, at the national level. But it's when you go subnational that the pure absurdity of some of, these, some of these definitions will start to kick in. So she mentioned the difference between statutory and census. These are two definitions that the government maintains. Now, let's go subnational. Let's go to the state of Kerala. The state of Kerala, according to statutory definitions, is 16% urban. According to the census, is 48% urban. Now, that is a very large gap between two official definitions, right? Now, now, if you basically say, all right, we are going to look at some alternative definitions based on whether we look at nightlights data or we say, look, let's take a definition that other countries use. So, for instance, a 5,000 person uh, population threshold or a 2,500 person population threshold, then something even more absurd happens, which is that Kerala goes from being 16% statutorily urban to 99% urban. Right? Now, so what you effectively have is a state that is perhaps virtually 100% urban. Now, anyone who spent time driving through Kerala knows this to be true, which is that the entire state is one large city. It's just one large urban conurbation. So, but you've got a state that is effectively almost 100% urban being governed as if it were only 16% urban. Right? And then you run into all the issues that Pritika mentioned. And, and we can now break it down at every state of India. What does it look like? And so on and so forth. So what you get as a consequence is, so for instance, again, to stick with the Kerala example, there is, um, um, uh, uh, there is um, I think, it's a, is it a census town, Kandavan Hills? Is it a, it is a census town. Okay, so uh, it's a, you know, technically a village of Kanandevan Hills. In, in it, it's near Munar. And the population of Kanandevan Hills is 55,000. Right? Now, in which world do you think that a population of 55,000 people is a village? Right? Now, as it turns out, in the case of Kanandevan Hills, it is run by the tea companies and so on and so forth. So all this alternate infrastructure that Pritika mentioned is actually provided by the private sector. But these very same examples of you know, villages with 50,000 people exist in parts of Uttar Pradesh, in Maharashtra and so on, where there isn't the backup secondary infrastructure provided by the private sector. Then you run into real trouble, right? So, so that's broadly the set of issues around, but fundamentally it kind of goes back to the question of what do you mean by urban? And so the mistake that most people make is when you hear the word urban, you assume that there is some standardized global definition that we're using. There is no standardized global definition. We are making it up. And it so happens that we picked, as India, we picked a particularly onerous definition of urban, which makes it really hard to become urban. So, you know, what you guys said reminds me of my time in Bhivandi. So there was a brief period between 2008 and 2010 where I, along with my family, we made the genius decision of actually having a factory. So we are, we are a textile background family. I, I am no longer a textile background family. Look at the smile in my face. I am no longer a textile background family. <laughs> so... Before I was a podcaster, I used to run uh, two factories, one in Navi Mumbai, one in Bhivandi. 
something very peculiar i used to observe in bhivanti so there was in in bhivanti there was an urban area where there were textile units it is called saravli midc midc being the maharashtra industrial development corporation and then there was so literally you have this main highway on one side you have saravli midc and then you have rural bhivanti and i would always wonder that every time they would try to convert rural bhivanti into urban bhivanti the biggest resistance would come from the people itself and one day i just had to ask them because there were some textile units that were owned by local politicians also i mean vaya vaya so it's like their money but somebody is like the main guy the front and i i had to find out i asked that person why do you guys object to every time it becoming urban isn't it nice to be urban is a huh? what is so nice about being urban more taxes more scrutiny more this more that i was like damn these people think like this and that's what so when pratika was mentioning this i immediately went back to my own bivandi experience from years ago i was like i can totally relate to why in india it is a fight to you know in india it, it's actually you have to convince people to go and tell them it's like it's okay to be urban <laughs> Sort of big deal because they're so scared about it because the fire norms changes like small things like that right if you and, are and, urban exactly and and then you you have to provide all these facilities right yeah. why bother right i mean it's a good place to be to pretend like you you you're rural enjoy all the subsidies and and by the way the the, the budgets are also much larger right i mean so you you it's a it's a it's a very nice place to it's it's a nice place to be by the way i would also ask the question of and this is controversial nobody in government wants to hear this but one could also ask the question of why do we have a rural development ministry and an urban development ministry right in the ideal world it's not like there is some sharp demarcation where this is where urban ends and this is where rural begins right in what re, in reality what happens is they're all kind of spilling into each other so from a national perspective what we should be focusing on is economic development and we should have an economic development ministry that takes care of economic development without getting into this entire conversation about is it rural is it urban should we provide something else for it's just pointless just focus on the economic development piece right Uh, I, I, and i don't know when you uh, i mean i i'm happy to get into the importance of urban question as well because i think that's incredibly important to get into because people don't understand it yeah and in fact let me paraphrase it like this uh hmm. i have been someone who has annoyed people multiple times to this message so i'll tell you what gets to me the most sometimes people use lines like this i'm going to use the hindi line and then i'll translate it in english for the benefit of our listeners and viewers every time i listen to this line asli gaon asli bharat to gaon mein rehta hai as like excuse me what if i go by the most you know fair definition 47 48% of india is urban what matlab pritika and i and rubin we are all nakli bharat now secondly India is the first largest urban metropolis that we know of right now as per current archaeological evidence millions of people lived across from all the way from the gujarat area to that all the way to pakistan which is the indus valley civilization millions of people we have ports we have settlements we have drainages like what were those people nakli bharat I, it it gets to me so maybe pratika now we start over here 
why are cities important um so so i like to say so so, so just one to your point on 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 asli bharat right i the thing that i always say is think about it at some point either us or our parents or our grandparents made the choice to move to a city right which is why we live in a city today and they did so because they maybe for a better opportunity they did so maybe because they were trying to escape discrimination or people do it because of aspiration and i think that's the biggest thing we deny when we say things like people should just stay in the villages why should they just stay in the villages maybe they aspiration to live in a city so so totally agree on that um on the point about why cities matter um so you know we always like to say that the cities are physical manifestations of markets right and of, of uh, and and ultimately so that's what explains the indus valley civilization for instance so so many civilizations through history especially ones that have grown around ports and different points of commerce right people come together to do business they come together for jobs for opportunities to improve their lives and then cities become the physical manifestation of that um so if you look there's research that shows actually through through time um in history urbanization and growth have been highly correlated right so you know every oecd country today is well over 70% urban but what's interesting is that correlation is beginning to break down in the developing world and you're actually beginning to see agglomeration so people moving to cities without corresponding increases in growth right and part of that is because we are not investing enough in regulating that growth so a the pace of that growth the pace of people moving to cities is a lot faster than it ever has been in history and that's one of the big reasons that we focus so much on urbanization because there's a small window to get this right so what's happening is that where agglomeration has led to growth in the past now agglomeration is leading to congestion right which is undermining the the value of um and so 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 you know it's very important that, and the reason that it matters to have whether it's fire safety codes or building you know some somebody in charge of building roads arterial roads basic infrastructure is you need some way to plan and regulate that growth not in a way that stifles markets but in a way that at least regulates them lightly um uh, you know in order to to uh, you know unlock the benefits of growth but i'd let ruben shed some more light on that yeah so um so um kushal uh, you mentioned in indus valley civilization i think the the most important contribution of the indus valley civilization which goes unrecognized is that the indus valley civilization was built on grids and hopefully we will have time to come to the issue of grids because i think that's actually incredibly important when it comes to urban planning and and so on and so forth because i think the grid is the way to do it uh anyway so so i think just to pull back on the on the centrality of economic growth uh, i mean of the urban question so in 1800 the world was approximately 3% urban right um in 2008 or so we crossed the threshold of being 50% urban so in effect after millennia the species has become urban right and that threshold was crossed 15 years ago we are going to basically see in the next say 15 to 20 years that is going to grow to about 75% urban and this is what some scholars kind of describe as the urbanization project right and when that is done when you get to 75 80% it will stabilize at that level so this is the opportunity it it will last about 20 to 30 years to get it right 
So now, now if you look at that pro process of what will happen in the next 30 years, about 2.5 billion people will urbanize across mostly Asia and Africa. And about 170 million people, further people will urbanize in the, in what we call the developed world. So the urbanization that needs to happen in the next, say, 30 years is primarily a, a Asia-Africa story, right? Latin America is, is already at 70% thresholds, more or less. So that is one part of it, which is that it is going to happen. It is best we prepare for it. It is best we get it right, right? So, uh, so that's one part of it. And we can get into the dynamics of why it will happen. Right. So there is that dynamic and that dynamic has to do with the fact that cities are fundamentally job markets. Right. Cities are job markets. Um, you know, maybe the three of us live in cities because we appreciate the museums and the cultural life and so on. But the average person who moves into a city is likely moving into a city because that's where the jobs are. So this incredible pull of of cities, because that's where economic activity is, that's where jobs are. There is no point trying to fight against that market pressure. And in fact, every attempt to try and fight it has basically ended up not just in failure, but in the disastrous results that you see littered across the Indian city landscape. So you keep FSI low and you keep FAR low and you end up with slums. And so on and so forth. We can we can get into the dynamics of it as we go on, but uh, so let me park that for the time being here and go back to the question of the importance. So I think the uh, you know back when I first used to lecture about this, the slide that I used was I just used the GDP slides, right? I mean, and so I would make it was a pop quiz and I would have these slides that showed GDP and I would have a bunch of countries on there on the slide and then i would have a couple of uh, bars on the in, on in the graph that were anonymous right and people had to guess what these were and it's hard to describe all of this in the abstract on the on the podcast but simply put basically what you would see in that graph was that a city like tokyo greater tokyo was bigger than canada and this by the way, this particular uh, uh, graph has become more less and less interesting over time. So when I first started doing it, Tokyo was bigger than Russia. In GDP. Now, now just think about that, right? With all of its natural resources, all of those things put together, you have a city in Japan that is actually bigger than Russia in pure GDP terms. If you look at New York and Tokyo, both of these cities, and Tokyo is quite a bit bigger than New York. Uh, but New York and Tokyo were bigger than Australia, Iran, Turkey. There's any number of these countries that you think of as economic powerhouses. And these cities were significantly bigger than that. Now, even in the Indian context, now we don't have accurate numbers for cities like Bombay and, and Delhi and so on. But I would argue that cities like Bombay and Delhi are probably bigger than the entire economy of Pakistan. Right? If you assume it to be about $300 billion, it's probably bigger than Pakistan. So this is why cities matter. So, so every time I hear you know, states in India coming up with their trillion dollar ambitions, my question is, how do you plan to get there? Right. So if you take Maharashtra, just to take that example, Maharashtra was one of the first states to say a trillion dollar economy. The question you have to ask is, what is the plan to get there? So for that, you have to first say, what is Maharashtra today? 
And Maharashtra today, give or take, I mean, we haven't looked at recent numbers, but give or take will be between, say, 400, 450, 500. It'll be in that sort of range, the GDP of a state like Maharashtra. Now, if you ask how much of that is just Bombay and Pune, it's likely to be 70, 75% of Maharashtra's economy is likely to be Bombay and Pune. So if you plan to, if you plan to basically get uh, Maharashtra to a trillion trillion dollars, by definition, you should have a plan in mind to double the size of Bombay. What is that plan looking like? Right? Now, now we have ideas for that. But this is the way one needs to think about it. Because economic growth just doesn't happen just in the abstract, right? I mean, it happens because there are engines that drive it. And cities are primarily the engines of economic growth. So therefore, you have to focus on the cities. That's the key. I couldn't agree more. And again, what I'm about to read is are, are kind of my views. Uh, please don't attribute it to Ruben or Pritika. But I'm reminded of something Ambedkar said on 4th November 1948. This is during, I think, the Constituent Assembly debates when Ambedkar said, what is a village but a sink of localism, a den of ignorance, narrow-mindedness, and communalism? I mean, I couldn't agree more with the man on, on this point. I, mean, I don't know why people don't like cities. It's like, I have never understood what is so special. I mean, are, I mean, why do you want to go there? What is so special there? I mean, uh, better for women's rights. I, just look at uh, most parameters. It, uh, more economic opportunity, more freedoms. You have the freedom to choose, right? You can choose to be socially conservative in a city and still live your life, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's just an amazing thing. But now let's get into the nitty gritties of what you guys have said. Can I just add one more point about Ambedkar? Um, and I think this is this is important because one of the things you'll notice is that most of the people who go on about the great value of rural life actually live in cities. <laughs> I mean, it's very easy to... And by the way, this is one of the things that Ambedkar actually pointed out about Mr. Gandhi, which is that having lived in Porbandar, Bombay... Uh, Ahmedabad, London, Johannesburg. I mean, what, on, on what basis do you make these claims about cities? Uh, about rural India, rather, right? I mean, because all you've actually known is urban India. And so Ambedkar felt very strongly about it because the way he the, the way in which he was brought up was very different from the way Gandhiji was brought up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not only that, see, I, I see two parallels. You, you're right. I see a fascination for socialism from people who are literally using, like I, I sometimes hear podcasters and YouTubers talking about the merits of socialism on the most capitalist tool ever, i.e. YouTube. And, and in my brain, I'm like, in Hindi, tumko sharam nahi aati. I'm like, aren't you ashamed? Like, do you realize how good you have it because of all these tools that cities and free markets have given you? Are, are there flaws in these systems? Absolutely. And that's the whole point, which is why this podcast is titled Reforming Urban India, because we did mess it up. But to say that the problem itself is fundamentally flawed, it it, it bugs me no end. I'm, just before coming on this podcast, like, 
Pritika and I were talking about traffic in Mumbai because we could relate to it. We are both in Mumbai. We could. We were just whining about our traffic, <laughs> and we're just sharing our common hatred for how hard it is to go. But it, not once in the entire conversation did Pritika say, "I am dumping Mumbai and I am going to the nearest village." <laughs> that i can go and live in she's not because it's amazing to live here it's 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 just brilliant so maybe now let's get into specific problems obviously here i, I guess ruben pratika we might have to focus on india because that's where a major chunk of our problems are and and as i was going through the material you guys shared with me and i went through them so if so so do we focus first on like i don't know you guys can decide do we first focus on the metro cities let's say in you know in delhi is the extended area just like mumbai we have the mumbai metropolitan region right which consists of navi mumbai thane and mumbai city itself along with the suburb so so i don't know uh, wherever you guys want to take it you know, you can take it from there so what are the current issues that we are facing and what could be the possible solutions also then so uh, i'll i'll let pritika uh, come in on the on the current issues but uh, so so if you i think the question you ask is a comp- requires a complicated response which is if you want the bang for the buck in terms of economic uh, growth and all of those things then clearly there is a lot of attraction towards changing things in delhi and mumbai and so on and so forth the problem however is political right precisely because the there are very well entrenched interests in all of these places and so the pushback to any reform is going to be significantly greater than uh, if you do it you know out of sight out of mind kind of thing so so i think i just keep the political economy piece of this in mind because ultimately we are dealing with a issue where at some level the solutions are all well known at least to the practitioners it's well known right it's the political economy of reform that makes it really really hard sorry pritika over to you no no completely agree and and i think that is linked to perhaps the first issue that i talk about which is i think the first thing we need to do before getting into a specific city is just recognizing the extent of abutra um and so one of the things we did you know so we did this work on urban definitions where we applied different definitions to uh, you know to existing data but we also set up a geospatial lab and just looked at india from the sky using satellite data and what you see actually is not you know not isolated cities but cities that grow into one another cities that grow along corridors and so we have to understand and appreciate the the sheer scale of our urbanization and the patterns of the urbanization so it's very interesting I remember we were looking at two cities in Rajasthan um and when you look at them you know as cells on an excel file when you're just trying to figure out what the definition is what you can't see is that these two cities are almost like magnets being pulled into one another right so you're seeing densification you're seeing transit developing between these two cities so i'd say and the other thing we saw is actually the fastest growing cities or you know fastest growing towns are, are not the bombays and the delhis and all of that it's the the small towns that are growing at 8% a year because like we've been said earlier you know people are coming for jobs are coming for opportunities and so i'd say the first issue really is that we need to we need to recognize the extent of growth and there are there are tools to do this um then we need to start planning ahead for growth right we also need to retrofit existing growth and i'll get to that in a second and planning ahead for growth ruben mentioned grids 
you know, it's easy to give the example of what, uh, you know, New York did um, or what Barcelona did, right? Which is they, they conducted this mental exercise saying, you know, if 200 years from now, this was in New York's case in 1811, if the city grows beyond the current uh, uh, confines, how will we plan for it? Right? And they put in place a notional grid. And then as the population grew, they built out along the grid. And that's today's grid of New York. Right? And grids are perfect because you know, they carry public transport. They can carry infrastructure. It's just an organized way. You can do what you want within the plots, but you've got your sort of the bones in place. Um, and, it, you know, it's easy to look at New York and Barcelona as an example. But in fact, you know, many years ago when we first started doing this work, Ruben and I were in Jaipur. And we had some time after a meeting. And so we went to the, you know, the old city of Jaipur. Everything we had just talked about, about grids, about major arterial roads, minor arterial roads, was right there in front of us. Right? So we don't even need to look too far. So the question is, can we plan ahead? To 100 years ago in Jaipur. Yeah. So, so that's when we stopped using New York and Barcelona as, as the examples. Um, and we need to retrofit in a good. So I'd say that the, the best practice for this really actually is Ampapal. So what... Uh, what they've been able to do in terms of, uh, you know, acquiring land as the city grows, acquiring land to build core infrastructure, and what they've done to retrofit inner city growth to widen, uh, you know, so to, to widen roads, let buildings grow taller so that there's more infrastructure to service them, I think really is best practice. So that's the first thing we need to do. The second problem we need to solve is that of housing. You know, so, so uh, Ruben mentioned this earlier, because we closed our eyes and failed to acknowledge that people were moving to cities, we've ended up with slums. Um, you know, and that is, uh, you know, a, a, just a huge disservice to anyone that's coming to try to build a, you know, foothold in the city and access opportunities. Um, so we need to invest in housing. We've actually done a lot of work on this, um, but specifically low-cost rental housing, because the idea that somebody should come to a city and buy is, you know, is 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 a lot to expect. Um, also, you want mobility, right? If this city you don't get the job that you want, or you get a better opportunity somewhere, you should be able to. So I'd say the second thing is housing. What's related to that is public transport. And there, you know, there's been a big push already. Um, a lot of cities are building public transport systems. One of the things we say is, you know, metro systems work in certain types of cities. Uh, but really what we need to be focusing on are buses. Right? So actually, most cities in India don't have public transport systems. A lot of them rely on state buses. Buses are easy to deploy. Routes can be changed as the city grows. So not BRTS, but just bus systems. And the fourth is, I think we need to focus on public health. Um, and what, what we mean by public health is everything from waste and landfills to tackling air pollution. Um, because the productivity loss of you know, people just falling sick because of lack of access to water and sanitation and, and air pollution is, is huge. So I'd say these are the, the sets of issues that um, we really need to focus on. And, and, and Kushal, if I, if I may, right, I mean, because we brought up the grids, um, <clears throat> the, the New York story, um, which Pritika briefly mentioned, which is in 1811, the government gives three commissioners, three, three gentlemen, basically the job of saying, in 200 years, the city will grow to, a and by the way, at that time, New York has a population of 25,000 people. It basically says in uh, 200 years, the population of the city will grow to 1 million. Now plan for it. So if you look at the south of New York, the south of New York, the streets are a complete jumble, right? I mean, you can't quite tell 
And then around 8th or 9th street upwards, it's the perfect grid. Right? So that is literally 1811 and onwards. And so from 1811, what happens in New York is you've got a grid in place. And now remember, Central Park is built in 1870. But Central Park is nothing but a Lego brick. It's a Lego brick that's been placed onto this existing grid. So what it does is, so it's not, so the beautiful thing about the grid that New York did was that it's not actually presupposing anything. It's not basically saying this will be a financial center or this will be a textile center. It is saying nothing. It is saying if the city grows as we expect it to grow, here is how it will grow. And that's it. So to many of us who kind of like, you know, really struggle with this question of how much regulation is enough regulation, the grid actually gives you a really useful mental model. Because New York, you know, New York in the early days, they were basically nothing but a sweatshop, right? Then it went from sweatshop, it went to garments, which is why you have the garment district. The garment district then went on to become something else. And then it became a financial services business, right? So it's gone through multiple iterations while the, and by the way, the, the population during daytime goes all the way up to 20 million. And all of that, the grid can withstand. But it was just a hypothetical planning tool that was put into place. Now, now, how does this kind of work play out, right? I mean, so again, if you look at satellite imagery in India, one of the things that you see is urban growth that we see, certainly in the south of India, tends to be around transit corridors, right? So you see roads uh, primarily. So for instance, you know, in Bangalore, you have Devanali Airport being announced. And at that particular point of time, Devanali is in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing there. And then you start seeing Bangalore begin to expand towards Devanali. Right? So you're beginning to see this pattern in Indian cities where the expansion is down transit corridors. Now, there is this plan, for instance, to build the Mumbai-Nagpur Expressway. But now, if you keep in mind what you've seen so far in India over the last 30 years, I think it's a fair bet that a large bit of Maharashtra's urbanization in the eastern corridor will actually happen along this highway. And I'm telling you this 25 years ahead of time. Right? Now plan for it. Got it. And, and the beauty of it is plan for it literally means reserve the rights of way to the land. It Absolutely. doesn't mean you build anything. If the growth doesn't come, it doesn't come. So the New, the New York grid was nothing but a map. Impossible map. It was, a, it was a map with enforcement. Right? So if you look at the early pictures of New York from the late 1800s and so on, you see squatters, you see slums, you see all of that. And the what the city of New York basically said is, by all means, stay here. But if the city expands to this point, we will clear this area. Mm. Political so, will. Yeah, it's the political will, but it's a 200-year political will that is playing out. So it's a map with enforcement rather than this whole business of let go, let's go acquire land. And no, we are saying nothing of the sort. So, so it's interesting because actually, the uh, you know, in Indian planning legislation, the mechanism for this exists, which is the development plan. And so you have to make the development plan. Except the development plan goes well beyond just reserving rights of way. 
and says you will specify what will be here, what will be zoned for this one. So now the development plan itself takes many years to make, then it takes many years to be approved, then it takes many years, you know, for it to, you know, to, to be notified. And by then, so so colleagues of ours have done this work looking at the deviation between sort of the sanction plan and what actually happens. And the market will do what the market wants to do. We're making criminals of people because we're putting rules in place that are way too onerous for anybody to follow, right? So again, going back to the point that cities are a market, cities reinvent themselves over time. You need minimal regulation. You need those sort of strong banks of the river. But then you have to allow for things to change. Otherwise, you get informality, illegality, or and then we, you know, there's a whole other business of chasing um, all of these. And a lot of this, Kushal, to a point that you made earlier, comes back to this problem, which, you know, and, it, and it's across political ideologies. We have this, this suspicion of markets. That markets can't get things right. So therefore, we must, you know, impose our iron will and say that this will be where the schools come in. Right? How do you know that this is an education district? Maybe it's an education district. Maybe it's not an education district. Maybe it's a healthcare zone. Maybe it's not a healthcare zone. Hmm. Talking about bad laws, I'm just sharing this as an example. I always keep this with me on my laptop handy. You guys are going to have a hearty laugh. So in the in the great city that both uh, Pritika and I live, there is something called <laughs> the Lime Wash Register. I, I, and let me give you guys a history of this. So there was a time in British India where cholera and many such things would exist. And, you know, we could not have the kind of uh, hygienic facilities that we could afford. So the then municipal corporation of the city of Bombay created this. We still have this. This is the form. <laughs> Just. Yes, you have to maintain if you are look at the terms and they are now writing this for a laundry shop i can tell you if the bmc wants to get to you it yeah. will get to you it will get to you and and so now i want to talk about something very specific from my experience uh i i hear these stories when i have these dinners or whatever you know they always say you know the one complaint is most cities in India are now becoming unaffordable at these rates because people just can't buy a house. Uh, I would like to discuss this. Why? Because FSI in Mumbai is, is a mystery that nobody can crack. And it is different in different areas. If you go to Mumbai North, there is a different FSI. If you go to some other area, there is a different FSI. For people you know who are not Indian and are listening to this, FSI is equal to floor space index. This is basically how much you can go vertically, right? That's pretty much what it decides uh, uh, as far as I am I, I'm understanding. Yeah. So can we talk about this? This like I've heard people saying, bro, if Dharavi gets developed, real estate costs will drop in Mumbai. No builder would want that. Is that real? So I don't know what to say about it. Go for it, Prithik. So, so if housing supply increases, you know, price should drop. It, there's a there's a long lag when you know uh, uh, that it'll take for all that housing supply to be built. 
And I think actually, you know, we keep saying Bombay doesn't have enough land. Bombay doesn't have enough, you know, Bombay has ample land. It's locked up, you know, in, in whether it's in litigation or there's a lot of, you know, um, government, state, municipal owned land, underutilized land. So, yes, you know, if we build housing at the scale that's needed, prices will drop. That's not, there's a huge time lag that's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, so, yeah, so FSI or flow area ratio in the US is essentially a, the multiple of the plot size that you can build on it. Um, yeah, so, so, Bombay has incredibly low FSI for a city of its population, right? And the argument, so typically the argument that was used, and to its great credit, you know, BMC, MMRD have been trying to change the legislation. They also run up against uh, a public pressure because people don't understand it. Right? People are scared what will happen if, if uh, FSI goes up. Um, so initially what happened is when people started moving to Bombay, FSI was seen as a tool to cap growth. So the thinking was literally, if I don't allow buildings to be too tall, people won't come. People will stay in the villages. No, that's not going to happen. If you come, all you will do is make make do with less and less and less space. So first, you know, apartments get subdivided, subdivided smaller and smaller. Those that can't afford it move to slums, right? So that's what you get in the first place. The second argument that was used is that the infrastructure that exists can't support higher buildings, right? And so it's it's an argument it's called carrying capacity. So what's the carrying capacity of of the infrastructure? Now, every city has faced this. Hong Kong has faced this. Singapore has faced this. New York has faced this. It's a dynamic process. So what you do is you allow buildings to go higher. As they go higher, you may ask them to, to set back. And Ahmedabad is doing this, actually, a little bit further from the road. So you can widen the road and you can increase the infrastructure. London has done this, right? You charge betterment levies, developer exactions, you finance it. It's a, it's a dynamic process that allows a city to grow over time. Now, you know, Bombay has a number of perversions. So that the, you know, the, the one thing that's pretty stunning is if you look at Ballad Estate, Ballad Estate doesn't have tall buildings and it has very wide roads. The FSI in Ballad Estate is four, and the FSI ev almost everywhere else in Bombay is 1.3. Right? And the only difference um, is and uh, sorry, I may be getting a bit technical here, is that um, so typically there's either land under buildings or there's land in, in, in public. In, uh, in streets and public space, right? And best practice is 60% of your land should be in buildings, 40 should be in open space. That's how you get wide roads. Um, in, in, in Indian planning legislation, there's this odd perversion, right? So you've got, um, when you build on a plot, you have to set back from the walls of the plot. You have to build what we know as the compound wall, and then you need to have space in the compound, and then your building stands, right? So you get a tall building, Lots of space between the building, the compound wall, which is walled off, and then narrow streets. So Indian cities, and this is Bim, uh, Bimal Patel, except this is his, his work, and it's incredible. So if you look at something like Nariman Point, you've got maybe 25% of land in buildings, maybe 30 to 40% of land in private open space. So th these are our compounds. And then a small sliver of land in streets. And in lower Korea, that amount of land in streets is something like 12%. Now, obviously, you will get congestion and obviously you will get high prices when the amount of land you can build on is circumscribed and the amount of land that you have for streets is also circumscribed. And all you are is floating around in these sort of large pools of land. The other thing is, if you look at any of the, this, this may be a very Bombay specific example, but if you look at any of the tall 
buildings in Mumbai. In order to achieve tall towers, you need a lot of land. So you aggregate a lot of land. And then you use the FSI to build a very tall tower, but then essentially you're floating in a lot of space. Um, and so the, the short answer to that long thing is yes, liberalizing FSI in Bombay it would make a big difference to affordability across the board. I have a follow-up question, uh, Ruben, uh, and, uh, and before you come in, for you, one of the biggest problems I face uh, when I study urban uh, real estate issues is uh, low income housing uh, ruben uh, just just to add to the question because i forgot to ask it do you think if we improve the fsi situation it would actually help the poor, the, the lower income groups the most and and now you can uh, take it over yeah so just to just to uh, let me just come in with with an example of how what prithika described as the disconnect between public open space private open space and so on so first of all if you look at uh, so this private open space which in narman point is upwards of 50%. If you look at Regent Street or Piccadilly uh, Circus in London, you know, which is like, you think of it as core central London, 3% is in what we call private open space, right? So the efficiency of land use, you see it in a place like London and you do not see it in a place like Nariman Point, even though most Indians would consider Nariman Point to be ultra dense, right? It's not. Now, how does this actually play out in, in theory is basically, so this was on my most recent visit to Bombay from our office in Bandra, we were going to a cafe, a new cafe that had opened up for dinner. So we said it's close enough by, let's walk. So we walked and it was about a seven to 10 minute walk. And as you can imagine, not a particularly pleasant seven to 10 minute walk. Now, after that, just out of curiosity, because I just wanted to see this uh, where this restaurant was on a map. So I looked up Google Maps and it's basically about two buildings behind us. Right? So if you yeah. just eliminated all those compound walls, it would have been at best a one minute commute. Instead, it has been converted into a 10 minute commute. On, right? on, on very poor roads. So this is the sort of thing that you constantly see. Uh, now, to your point about uh, low-income housing, um, I'll, I'll, I'll let Pritika come in as well. But as a general principle, yes, if you... So I think there's two ways to answer that question. First of all, um, I think if you care about low-income housing, you should also care about rental, right? Because I think that is the most important piece for any migrant who's coming into a city they're not looking to buy anything. Just like when any of us went abroad or wherever it is that we went, we were not, our first instinct was not to go buy a house, right? Our first instinct is to be able to rent a place. So I would argue that we need to dramatically, especially in the cities which, I, in the cities which attract large numbers of migrants, we need to dramatically increase the, the amount of rental space that is available to incoming migrants where they can either, you know, so it's a, it, think of a hostel dormitory kind of model, right? I mean, I want to hire a bed or I want to hire a shared space, something along those lines, but with a decent bathroom, decent common kitchen, something along those lines. So a college mess and IIT hostel, you know, you could use any of these kind of, that's really what you're looking at. So we need to think about it. Now, what happens in rental housing? So in the past, we had done a bunch of work and we had run into this company in Hyderabad 
which actually had managed to crack how to do urban rental housing. And then they stopped. And you realize what was going on is, so they had, they had basically cracked a kind of dormitory housing model. Now, the problem with dormitory housing models is that once you cross a certain number of threshold of rooms, you automatically become a hotel. And all the regulations change, making the entire dormitory model that you've built unfeasible. Right? So this is a little bit of that small-scale industry problem all over again, which is there are inbuilt things that prevent scale. Whereas this should be a massive rental housing opportunity and business that people should, you know, basically take up. On the on the FSI question, uh, Pritika, you can come in on on you know just generally increasing the stock of available floor area. And I think we, we, we had done this work um, um, on affordable housing a couple of years ago, and we called it instead of, uh, the, the idea was how do you increase the supply of housing, right? So not how do you, usually right now what we do is we, sub, housing is expensive to build for a variety of reasons, and then we, you know, we apply subsidies to it, right? Instead, look at the supply chain, why is housing so expensive to build in the first place, right? And you realize it's because, you know, parcels of land need to be connected by transport. So you can open up, um, Hong Kong does a great job of this, open up new parcels of land. Um, uh, uh, you know, permits and uh, uh, approvals take 18 months, you know, the sheer cost of capital. Then there are fairly onerous requirements. So even a low-cost home needs one or two parking spots. I mean, that adds a cost. And it's, you know, chances are person in a low-income home doesn't have two cars. I mean, very few people have two cars. Um, so we looked at essentially the, the entire supply chain of providing housing um, and, and, and certainly, you know, reducing um, restrictions on zoning, uh, increasing FSI, all of that goes a long way towards liberalizing the yeah. So it can't be a single solution, Kushal. It has to be a multiple bunch of things that come together, including, by the way, listening to the end user. Because a lot, so by the way, I, I was actually involved in spinning out a housing company. So we learned the very hard way, uh, all the problems of building housing in India. Because a lot of the time what happens is what we had in mind versus what people want. There's a complete disconnect there, right? Uh, and, and so on. But, but the bottom line, and Pritika kind of hinted at it, if your capital cost, let's assume for a second, your capital cost of 15%. Mm -hmm. And there's an eight-month approval process. Right? Guaranteed, you're not building low-income housing. You're building condos because that structure can only allow you to build condos. So, so are there ways around this? I think there are ways around this. I mean, we haven't tried it, but I think we should, which is to basically, for instance, I'll just give you a random idea, right? So, for instance, if you say, so by the way, we also, again, affordable housing is one of these things where we have to be clear about definition because Affordable housing in Bombay is very different from affordable housing in Coimbatore, right? I mean, in Bombay, if you have a house house for 30 lakhs, that would be affordable housing. In in Coimbatore, 30 lakhs would be, you know, upper middle income housing. So, so there's there's all these differentials that we need to play. But keep what at, at, a, at a local level, keep whatever threshold you want, right? So you say 15 lakhs is affordable housing, okay? And if you're priced below that price point, 
then you get automatic approvals within three months. And if you don't get those approvals, then the, then the burden of proof has to shift to the bureaucrat to basically say, why aren't you letting this project go ahead? Mm. Right? This will not apply to high income huts. So if you, if you're building a three crore building, you know, it goes through the standard process, but at least for the very low end of the market, is there a way to clear up the supply side hurdles? Right. I mean, when I say that I was involved in this business of trying to build housing, that all of that came from the perspective of the problem is on the demand side. Actually, there's no problem on the demand side. Most of the problems are on the supply side. And can I, I can I just say that this is such a complex system because what you hear from Babus is so different. Like what they try to say is is so different. They I mean, they have a problem with they, they essentially. I mean, I'm not going to take names. I've I've met people in my yeah, my yeah. whole <laughs> life of doing some social activism, and now being a podcaster. Man, they say very different things. Why? <laughs> no, I know why, but I mean, why? Why should we suffer? Why? My why was not a why question mark. My why was like why kind of thing. So, so look, I mean. I, Look, so I, I, I'll give you a, one example of this, right? So one example of this is anytime you talk about increasing FSI, you're in cahoots with the real estate guys because the real estate guys also want increased FSI. Actually, the real estate guys do not want increased Don't FSI. want it. Yes. They, they want, want it. They want increased FSI for themselves. Yes. They do not want increased FSI for the city. Yes, because that would drop the price and they must have bought huge pockets of land at, at 500, 600, 700 crores. Classic case, I don't know if uh, if Pritika would remember the biggest problem being uh, land prices in BKC. You remember the problem there? Yeah. No, no absolutely. So, so this whole idea that we are, you know, so, I mean, uh, all of these accusations have been thrown at us. When we say things like increase FSI, the immediate thing is, you know, yeah, you're in, you're in cahoots with the real estate guys. I'm like, guys, what we are advocating for is actually entirely antithetical to the interests of the real estate guys. Yeah. And so, so we made an important uh, distinction, right? So Ruben was talking about, you know, what looks affordable in different cities matters. There's, there's been this big national effort, not now, but, you know, 10, 12 years ago to say, okay, what is an affordable home, right? And it was tried to be measured in terms of the size of the house, the price of the house. But these things just not going to apply across cities of different sizes. So the way we approached it was, how do you make housing affordable? Make housing something that is affordable to build. And that the answer lies in, you know, in, in, in opening up parcels of land, in uh, doing approvals faster, in liberalizing not just FSI, but zoning restrictions. Make housing a less difficult and expensive thing to build. And, and, and rental housing. I mean, it has to be a very large part of the answer. You know, one significant difference, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. is whatever little I've tried to read is, 
in fact in a very major way a sign of a successful city is how many people in that city just live on rent because you know that's the urban life today i have a job here tomorrow i have a job there maybe i don't own a house yes in my old age somewhere down the line i moved to the suburbs where you know literally it sounds like i'm going to sanyas ashram or vanprasth ashram to use uh, use the indian adage and and uh, that's when maybe i don't know but uh Pritika, what do we do about this typical Indian mentality? I'm sure, Ruben, you also know this. Your parents must have told you. Pritika, your parents must have told you. The classic line is, but we have to own a house, right? Because every major city in the world, whether it's Toronto, New York, most people are living on rent. I mean, but in India, what? You don't have a house? Why don't you have a house? Yeah. You, you know, I, I think... <laughs> I am I, laughing because we, we, we have talked about this a lot. Um, maybe in some sense, it's just, it's, you know, in a, in a, we've grown tremendously as a country, but in a poor country, security matters. And where there's no social welfare system, you feel like you need to secure your basics, right? If I don't have a house, I don't have a social housing system I can rely on. I don't have a shelter I can go to. And so that need to own a house and just own the assets that you can own is really important. You know, it's the same reason to some, like even like owning gold, right? I think it's a security thing. Um, and, you know, at the upper end of the spectrum, that's fine. And that anywhere in the world, right? you can choose to rent, you can own, you can have multiple homes, it doesn't matter. But I think at the lower income, it's a sense of insecurity and that, you know, if I don't have this, who am I going to and what am I going to rely on? I think I mean, that's and I and I think you know to just add to that, I, it, it, the house, gold, all of these are the ultimate hedge against a dysfunctional state. Yeah, that's really what it kind of comes down to, and so this is kind of like you know transmitted over generations into us. But what has also happened is that in between all of this, people have also got it into their heads that somehow this is a great investment idea. Yeah. <laughs> And, and that's where I, you know, look, for whatever emotional reasons you want to buy a house, be my guest. I have no problem with it. But I think once you get into this game of which is then fueled by the, you know, by the, by the advertisers, everybody feed into this frenzy. But the truth is, as a long-term investment, unless you're invested through a portfolio approach into housing, housing is actually a pretty bad investment. You're locking up money into a single asset for you know obscene amounts of time and in places like the US where the research has actually been done because the US also used to have a fairly you know again there's a long <clears throat> history to this but it's this business of the ownership society in the US which then gave all these enormous uh, you know subsidies into building housing especially subsidized housing outside of cities and so on and so forth you will actually see this in the data now because it's been investigated is that it has led to, to your point, Kushal, a lowering of social mobility. You no longer have the ability to just up sticks and leave, which was at some level, that was the American dream, right? I mean, you could move to where the opportunities were, but suddenly you're locked into your biggest asset being in one particular area. And what that means is you're now locked into the economy of that area. And so if that economy goes for a toss, that's it. Game up for you. So I think, you know, so if you look at, and, and I think it's important to also mention that countries like Switzerland, 
for instance, I mean, Switzerland has maybe 35% of the population that owns houses, right? I mean, 65% of people rent. Uh, and, you know, I would argue that at $95,000, they're a pretty damn successful economy. So, so I think, yes, that, that shift needs to happen as well. But look, that's a, I don't think that's a fight we're going to win anytime soon. Uh, I think, therefore, our focus should be in terms of when the poor move in. We should not get them into situations where they have to own or they're caught in these bizarre uh, situations because of just bad policy decisions. And instead, give them, you know, a, you know, if you look at a housing ladder, which is how we had sort of thought, the bottommost rung of a housing ladder is rental housing. You've mm -hmm. got to give them the ability to get on the ladder. Yeah. And, and by the way, you could argue that rental housing already exists. So half the slum properties are probably, you can call them rental yeah. housing. But when I say rental housing, I mean decent housing with a proper toilet. Running water, drainage, everything. Water, all of those things. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. In fact, one of the funniest things, again, part of our culture is like, uh, I have nothing against arranged marriage. I'm just using like, even in arranged marriage, one of the criteria is that does the person on both sides have a house or not? I mean, it is so funny. I, I, I just, I, I find this Indian obsession of owning the house very unique. Or, or owning a car for that matter. Like my wife and I, a few days ago, were having a discussion. We should also not own a car. Why do we need a car if we are just living in a city? You, you Today, living in a city like Mumbai, it's not like I can afford it, but I can rent a Ferrari every day if I want to. There, there are companies that do these things. And I, I don't. But okay, now I have to talk about the one thing that everybody says in India. What is with Indians and their love for the planning of Chandigarh? You're picking all our favorite topics. <laughs> it it annoys me. Look, I have nothing against. I have family in Chandigarh and Panchkula. Before my family members call me on the phone and say, "Oh, hey," I was like, "Calm down." But that's a really badly planned city. Can we talk about it? That is the Indian example of we have such a good city. Yeah, no, uh, Pritika, you should go for it because Pritika is actually a trained city planner. But look, all I can say is, you know, if 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 a metric of a successful city is a thriving economy and so on and so forth, then Chandigarh has clearly demonstrated to you that it's an absolute failure. And the only successful thriving part of Chandigarh is actually the most unplanned part of it, i.e. Mohali. I.e. Mohali or Mani Majra. The, yeah. the one near Mani Majra. Yeah. Sorry, Kapritika, over to you. So I, I agree completely. And Pushal, I also have family in Chandigarh. So Chandigarh is, is sort of the dream, right? I can plan these roads. I can, you know, allocate space for different things. And, you know, may, look, it, it may have applied at a point in time, right? When population growth to cities was slow, right? And you could manage it. The, the, I mean, exactly what, what you know, what Ruben and you said, I mean, the, the success of Chandigarh actually is, is outside of it. So I think the fundamental, so look, Chandigarh looks attractive to us as Indians is because we're like, wow, there's order, there are streets, you know, there are pavements, uh, you know, there are, um, uh, you know, there are good municipal services. But I think the fundamental problem is, so Chandigarh doesn't allow itself to scale, right? Because there are restrictions on what can be built. Ideally, what should happen within those wide streets and those plot areas and everything that's demarcated, the first thing that should happen is, A, the city will expand 
and b those lovely leafy bungalows that we all enjoy staying in should densify and become taller and right? more people on the same amount of land right um it, it's just it, it it it's restrictive and so growth goes elsewhere right so i think our attraction to chandigarh is we it's just a you know lovely little oasis of order uh, but it's it's it, you know we, we talk about inclusion chandigarh is, is very exclusionary i mean how do you how do you move to chandigarh as a young migrant that what that may find a job in chandigarh you know how do how do new businesses service industries set up in chandigarh if you can't take the same plot of land go higher tear buildings down and 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 so so yeah i, I mean yeah I, i think i think that's exactly right i mean so you know by comparison you can look at say ottawa in canada or canberra in australia you don't exactly see people beating down the hatches uh dying to move from toronto to move to ottawa or montreal to move to ottawa right or indeed from Thank melbourne you. to move yes to, move to canberra so yeah i think i think these are just you know some what we crave is a well done city a well ordered city a city that functions all of those things and so because we can't get any of that in our existing cities we crave this optimal out there so so by the way so i think this is an important one because i think it's also important to because you know when we say the word city or we say the word urban the thing that comes to mind in the average indian mind is the chaos of mumbai or the chaos of bangalore right that's what snaps into people's mind so two problems one there are any number of cities out there right i mean there are cities that have 100000 population 50000 population so a city does not necessarily mean that you have to then move into the biggest possible city there are many many options that are available to you so in 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 the case of the united states as an example one of the great successes of the united states or now you're seeing this in china as well is the fact that it's been able to grow many many engines at many many sizes yeah. right so you can live in chicago you can live in new york you can live but you can also live in columbus ohio you can live in knoxville tennessee this any number of these kind of options available to you right so that's one of the key differentiators that we need to make that is one the second thing is when we think about cities we also have to remember that there are perfectly functional cities that need to come to mind as well yeah. right zurich is a city london is a city tokyo is a city so just because our cities are dysfunctional does not mean cities are dysfunctional if our cities are dysfunctional it is because we've made them dysfunctional over time exactly now let us talk about uh, a few solutions again two specific projects that are often touted one is this whole thing and and ruben you had written about it this whole sez model because i think sezs are also kind of very important when it comes to the whole idea of urban development because the idea behind it and correct me if i'm wrong from whatever i have understood it leads to economic development and whenever there is economic development there are other second order third order effects around it which leads to further development and the second one is uh, which has been touted as smart cities first of all i have a huge problem with this uh, entire terminology itself i mean what there is a dumb city and then there is a smart city or there is a technically sound city i, I just don't understand these words i wish first of all indians were good you know we have such beautiful personal names i wish we gave, we gave better names to our ideas also so let us focus now uh, on the tentative solutions that are being promoted from the uh, state and society at large and then let us talk about actual solutions after that 
So again, so so with special zones, uh, this will take a few minutes to explain, but just indulge me. I think with special zones, one has to take a step back and ask, why do we need special zones? We don't need special zones because special zones uh, are urban experiments or whatever. The end result of a successful special zone is a city, right? But a city is not the starting point. The starting point is a completely different place. The starting point is political economy, which is it is really difficult to do any reform, right? That's the central problem that you're trying to get at. So, so, So rather than do reforms that are anyways difficult to do at the largest possible scale, is it possible to do it at the smallest possible, smallest and most viable possible scale? That's the question you're asking. So to use the language of operating systems, what, so let's take China as the perfect example of this. So this is what they nailed under Deng Xiaoping. So Deng Xiaoping basically realizes that the operating system that China is running on, which is, let's call it MS-DOS, is massively inferior to what is out there in the market, whether that's Unix or Solaris or any of these things. Now, what I need to do, the solution is obvious, right? Which is I need to basically move people from MS-DOS to Solaris. But if you've tried to do that in your office department, leave alone at any scale, you'll realize that you will run into political economy issues. Because people will be like, but I'm so comfortable using MS-DOS. Why are you moving me to this thing? And so on and so forth. So he understands fully that this is not going to be feasible in places like Beijing and Shanghai and so on, which already have a wide base of MS-DOS installed. Instead, let me try installing installing Solaris into a place where there is no computers at all, right? Or they're using typewriters. And that place that he discovers is, a is you know, it's also geographically important because it is a place, it was a fishing village that was basically the jumping off point for migration into Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is running Solaris. So all of these people are craving Solaris. So they escape from this point into Hong Kong to get their access to Solaris. Right? And this is a ship fishing village. And so the typical communist uh, kind of response to this would be, close the borders hard, punish people who are trying to migrate and so on and so forth. Instead, Deng Xiaoping basically asked the question of what do we need to do to get Solaris here on this side of the uh, water rather than on that side of the water? And that fishing village was Shenzhen. Shenzhen, when it started, had an economy of $160 million and a per capita GDP of approximately $700. Shenzhen then grew. Right? and grew and we know the success of Shenzhen today. Shenzhen as of 2020 has a, a GDP of 400 billion and a per capita income of about 30,000. So you've gone from 700 million to 30,000 in 40 years. I mean, surely the greatest increase in human prosperity ever, the fastest growth in human prosperity that you've ever seen is happened in front of you in Shenzhen. Now, once these things get proven in Shenzhen, it begins to spread across the country. So, for instance, famously, when Deng Xiaoping goes to the Southern Tour in the in the early 90s, the Shanghainese, for instance, they, they are basically complaining about the fact that Shenzhen has got ahead of Shanghai. right? And so what happens is 
the Shanghainese basically get Pudong as their special zone. Right? Now, so that is the origin story of how it became of when you find reform difficult to do, try to scale down the reform into a lab, into a uh, sandbox, try it out, see if it works. And if it works, it begins to scale outwards. Right? So that's the logic of this. Now, there's one other thing to re remember here is that when Deng Xiaoping first introduced these ideas, they were not called special economic zones. They were called special zones. In, within the party, he had very conservative opposition who basically came up saying, look, if you allow for experimentation, the experimentation will surely spill into the political domain and become a threat to the party. And so it was a way to fight off the conservative criticism that he introduces the word economic into special zones. And the message that you're sending is the experimentation should be only in the economic realm. This has basically been misinterpreted to basically mean tax giveaways and all of this kind of stuff, right? And not to mention the fact that where, you know, all of these things require scale, right? And again, what, what you're doing with Shenzhen is you're basically drawing an imaginary map. And you're saying within this imaginary map, the rules have now changed. Rather than go and acquire 200 acres of land and declare it an SEZ, right? So it's a very different approach. And, and keep in mind, the, the, you know, the, the, the Chinese started with four zones. I mean, we started with like hundreds. Right? So all of them subscale. We don't have the capacity required to actually govern any of these things and so on and so forth. So I think we completely mismanaged how to do the SEZs because we thought, thought of it as tax giveaways. And, and, and so on and so forth. So, so I think, you know, Paul Romer has a really interesting way to think about it. So he say, he calls it a test for whether something is a reform or a concession. The first test is temporal. And the temporal test is this particular, let's, let's say, for instance, let's say it's a tax, tax rebate of some sort. Does it need to have a sunset or can it go on forever? And if it requires a sunset, then it means it's a concession. If it can, if that particular tax reform can go on forever, then it's actually a genuine reform. And the second condition that Paul Romer says is geography. I can you do you need to contain this within a certain area, or can you let it spread across the entire country? And if you need to contain it within a certain area, then it's a concession. If it needs to, if it can spread across the country, it is a reform. Right. So that's the way one thinks about this. Now, you know, then we can get into the question of what are the obvious places where you can do things like this, right? And I've written about this as well. The most obvious one sitting right in the midst of both of all of our lives is the eastern waterfront of Bombay. It's 900 hectares of empty land. Right? Just think about what you can do there because... Ultimately, when you think of the city of London, the financial hub of London, one of the great financial centers of the world is 150 or 160 hectares. Canary Wharf is 45 hectares. Right? You look at the financial zones of all of these, the Dubai International Financial Center is about 40 hectares. The eastern waterfront of Mumbai is 900 hectares. Just use your imagination to think in terms of what you could do there.
by changing the rules, by saying here, a different set of rules shall apply. Hmm. Now, this whole smart city thing. So I'll give you an example that I was uh, looking up. I, I'm sure you guys know this. Like, how? Do, what do I make of something like this? Suppose there is a fire and uh, somebody came up to you. I don't know what the current status is, but as per my last article that I read, which was in October 2022 in the Times of India, in a blaze, our ladder can scale only 30 stories, but skyscrapers must have a working firefighting system too. You know, a person, a normal human being will read this Pritika and be like, I'm not going up. <laughs> you, you, you can call it as irrational as it gets. But this is, you know, people think in binaries most of the times. They are risk averse, especially Indians uh, in a society that has a scarcity mindset. So when we talk about smart cities, what the hell are, why, like, are we kidding ourselves? So, so we, we always used to say, let's, let's try, let's try dumb cities first. <laughs> um, <laughs> because really, I mean, some of the stuff that you need to get right, uh, you know, is, is are, are the basics, you know, it's the, it's, it's the roads, it's the sewerage lines, it's, it's all of that. I actually remember this, this story actually from, um, uh, where, so the, you know, the ladder was long enough, but the road was so narrow that the, that the fire engine got in, but then it didn't have the, it just didn't have the leverage to, you know, uh, you know, whatever, raise the ladder. Up. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that we need to fix before we get that. I think, you know, the one thing that we've heard is, look, what the Smart Cities mission managed to do is get cities to actually experiment, try things, you know, again, like mini, mini sandboxes. But so so I think I think you know I think the critical thing again and because we've gone on and on it's it's critical to understand and define what we mean. So when we say smart, what exactly do we mean by the word smart? I think it's sure. I think the the problem with smart cities started with that, which is you know you haven't defined what that word actually means and what has happened and because it's been egged on by the you know, by the IBMs and all the tech companies have egged this on, is that you've equated the word smart with the word digital. Now, digital may be one of the ways in which you express your smartness, but it surely is not the only way you can get to be smart, right? Having a functional bus system is smart. Having functional housing is smart. Having functional drains is smart. There's, it's not necessarily digital. Right. The question I always pose to people is, how did Singapore both get to be a great city and a great place to live before the Internet? Right. So so why do we assume that this all all of this has to do with digital? And I think, you know, broadly speaking, I think this is a curse in India in general, is that because problems are hard to solve, we're looking for magic bullets. And the magic bullets are like, you know, it's microfinance one day. Uh, it is smart something or the other. They, they, you know, it's, it's the internet. Nanotechnology. Nano. Nanotechnology. It sounds so nice. Yeah. So it's a bunch of these things because they seem like magic bullets. The truth is a lot of these things are actually process re-engineering. 
in once you streamline your processes can technology play a role 100% technology can play a role but always remember that technology is a means it's not an end to make technology in and of itself the end is the problem now having said all of that as as pritika mentioned i think what the smart cities mission has done is it has given us some room for experimentation which also means that there is still room for experimentation there are these spvs that have been set up so if it's possible to have a you know have a good enough imagination and the ability to take some risk i think the smart cities still provide you a little sandbox to try out something maybe it's analog maybe it's digital but try something new so try something risky to me uh, you know what it sounds like the, the these are words people use to feel good about themselves yeah, 100% so, you know there is a famous line in a hindi movie where uh, again i'll do it in hindi then translate it in english for the benefit of everyone they say samajh mein nahi aaya magar sun ke bahut acha laga as in i did not understand what you said but it's very nice when you say it so it yeah. must have like a lot of times it sound like postmodernism it makes no sense when you read postmodern literature but it sounds very good so it must be very profound you add big big words and it ends with a ism everything is an ism so you know being a philosophy student i'm used to reading postmodern literature and then you at the end of it all after reading 100 pages i'm scratching my head and i'm like what did i do today i just read 100 pages of word salads so th- this is the core problem now let's get into real world solutions before i take because there are a lot of your questions also so t- t- tell me prithika let's start with you real world solutions for india i mean we are not going to solve global problems let us start at home it's a difficult question <laughs> um i'd go back to i think the most important thing we need to do is you know conceptually understand the value of cities um i think we need to understand you know or, you know we talk, we talked about all the things we like here right we're talking about reducing long term emissions we talk about growth we talk about all the things understanding how the line through to a lot of these run through cities so a, a, you know piece of work we're doing right now um is you know looking at the link between uh, cities and long term emissions and so if you get urban energy systems right if you get public transport right if you get urban form right you contain sprawl and have more compact urban development and if you get construction right i mean that's going to solve a lot of long term emissions um so i'd say to, you know to me it's it's wrapping our heads around you know the, the actual extent of growth planning ahead for the retrofitting existing growth and within this i mean there's a million different things that need to be done but these are all you know real world practical solutions that 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 can be done i mean amdabad really has led the way uh, you know they've partnered with sept over the years they they've really done a lot to control how how the city has grown um and so there's a host of real world solutions in there um so so i a couple of things one um to just build on this i think there also needs to be a political constituency that is created right because if we are arguing that 50% of the country is urban then it also means that there is a political constituency out there that is not necessarily being spoken to and spoken about 
I think it is important to create that political constituency because ultimately that political constituency will drive the change, right? So I think it's very, very important. I, I, again, I'm agnostic to which party does it. At some level, AAP and Shiv Sena are urban parties, right? And, and, and they could actually take on the mantle of basically saying, we focus on urban India, right? But someone needs to find the political leverage to do it. Beyond that, if I think of cities as primarily, and I think this is a very important point to make, is to me, cities are basically poverty digesters. They take in poverty, poor people, and they cure them of their poverty at some level by getting them to some reasonable standard of living, right? Which then means more poor people will come in and so on and so forth. So they actually do a very, very good job of digesting poverty. They're poverty eliminators. So if you look at China, again, as an example, where urbanization has obviously done, a, they've done a much better job with cities than we have. Urban poverty today is less than 1%. In, in all of China, right? Less than 1%. That's what we should aim for. So to the extent that we care about poverty and we care about the poor and we care about what cities can do for the poor, I would go back to what I said earlier, earlier cities are job markets. So beyond the economic engines that need to fire, now that's a separate argument of, you know, how do you get the economy to fire and all of that? But let's assume for a second that the economic engines are firing then I think the two things that you absolutely totally focus on is public transport and affordable housing. Because those are the two things that matter the most to people, which is a, you know, a reasonable quality uh, roof over my head and the ability to get from my workplace to my home. And by the way, that can also be walking. It doesn't, it doesn't have to mean metro systems or anything of the sort. It can also be, I need to be able to walk to work. Right? The story of places like Dharavi is exactly that. It's a short commute to work is, 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 a, is what a lot of that comes down to. So and in, so in that mix, in, in public transport, focus a lot more on buses, a lot more attention to buses than we give today. And in housing, a lot more attention to rental housing than we give today. That would be, and by the way, these are politically sellable, right? I mean, it's not like I'm, a, a fleet of good new buses on the roads is actually a political and you can get it done. It's not like you need hundreds of thousands of crores. You can put buses on the road in six months. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now let's take uh, some of the viewers' questions. Okay, Pratika, first I go to you. <laughs> this is this is a true urban animal. It says, why do we have such narrow roads and no tunnels? Also, why did we wait so long for a metro and ceilings at this rate of development? <laughs> <laughs> this is so funny. I'll be too old to enjoy anything in Mumbai. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I feel your pain. <laughs> um, so, you know, why do we have... Yes. So, look, in a city like Mumbai, we waited way too long for the metro. Think of when Delhi started doing the metro. I mean, Mumbai should have started at that. Okay? And... A lot of this goes back to, you know, it, it, a lot of it is political economy. The plan for the coastal road, the plan for, from the 70s, right? It's just taken all of this time to, to implement it. Uh, so completely agree there. Why do we have such narrow roads? It's the perversion we talked about earlier. So again, land should be 60% in buildings, 40% in public open space, which includes roads. Um, the way Indian planning legislation is written, most of land is locked up, not even in buildings, but in this privatized open space. You will never see your compound the same way again. 
um, after you see these these maps, right? The sheer amount of land that is just locked up, and then retrospectively we justify whether oh, we need it for parking, we need it for this, we need it for that. It's just a it's just a you know a, a planning legislation, and then what's left for roads is really narrow. Then of what's left, uh, there's encroachment. Right? So because we don't enforce proper lane management, we, you know, there are shops on the sides of the roads, you know, people stop on the side of the road. What could even be a 16 meter road effectively is a is a one lane road. Um, and so there's, you know, even more than the physical space available, the attributable space is, is even less. But, but you know, to add to add to that, I, I suppose the question to the, you know, we could ask the question back to the viewers. Hmm. Are you willing to give up compound walls? Are yeah. you willing to give up parking? Right? Because these are the things that make your life truly miserable at a population scale. Yeah. But if we insist on all of these things for ourselves, then don't expect things to get better. If we are willing to use public transport, if we are willing to use buses, if we are willing to use trains, we use all of that. We're, you know, what is parking? It's parking is basically, you know, the, when I, you know, people, when the poor basically do squatting, we call it slums and illegal. Parking is basically urban dwellers squatting. You're taking a piece of public land and putting a car on it for free. Why is that okay? That is not okay. You have just hurt so many folks in South Mumbai who struggle to find a parking spot. Uh, like one of the things of South Mumbai is where do I park? That's like a proper discussion people have in South Mumbai. It's like my very gaadi kidar park karu. It it is hilarious. Uh, okay, someone has asked. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Go ahead, Pratika. No, I was going to say there are solutions there as well. I mean, we do need to solve the problem of parking in cities. Uh, but but you know, actually, if we just opened up all those compound walls, and it, it's it's you know, it's what Ruben said earlier. We we always think of this at the plot level. I need this and I need this, and we don't think about how this adds up at the city scale, right? So the city scale. All of these little setback areas that we have around our homes add up to a huge amount of wasted land, which if put in the public domain would also solve the parking problem. And the, you know, walking on pavements and wider roads and all one thing about payments people don't realize i had attended a presentation by iit mumbai where they said because india does not have proper footpaths it reached to one of the highest contributors to particulate uh, matter and uh, that's what uh, people don't realize but then it is what it is what do we do no, all right but, so just to just to drive home that point right i mean and i, I hate to make this overly mumbai centric but 90% of mumbaikers use their feet yeah. The primary form of mobility in Mumbai is people's feet, right? You have to respect that and you have to give people the space to walk. Yeah. Yeah. So next one is, uh, I guess Ruben can take it. Would we consider all cities that have connectivity to good transport infra and have residential and commercial areas, 1 million plus population? As I think they're asking, like, would this be like a city then? With these at, at one million, yeah, one million. Yeah, so look, I, I don't think there's any standard definition that is even required, right? I mean, I go back to this whole thing of you know, a lot of this is artificial. It's more a question of can you provide services for a given population size? And I don't particularly care about what governance structure that takes, as long as the services are actually available to citizens. So, should one million be a city? I don't know. And it's not even clear to me that we need to know. 
Um, mm. I don't know, Pritika, maybe you have a different view on this. Yeah, so, so how I understood the question, are cities with these amenities 1 million? But I think it goes the other way. I think as the city grows in size, you then get the resources to put those amenities in place. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Somebody then, has so, asked. Okay, uh, anyone can take this. This is fun. What about Soviet-style urban planning in India? As the Soviets built new cities or built cities near an old urban city center, so cheap land acquisition, it is, uh, uh, there is cheap land acquisition, and they provide cheap amenities to maximum number of people. Self-contained neighborhoods are, although very grotesque. <laughs> I can look at this, uh, the expression on both your faces. They're like, Soviet planning? Didn't we have enough of that? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, look, I think, I think again, this whole idea that we have a better sense of the future the, and we know how to lead someone else's life better than they themselves do, I think is just a very, very bad idea. Which is why I keep going back to the New York grid which is, yes, do you need some amount of planning so that, you know, there needs to be some amount of order, the, a way for things to, you know, put, be put into place, street grids, all of that. I think beyond that, let's not get overly prescriptive in terms of what gets done here and there and all of that. You know, just let people be. I think we're, yep. we're so desperate for this. It, you know, Soviet planning relies on this certain omniscience that doesn't exist but somehow we just want that to deliver us from this from this chaos not um, to mention the not to mention the level of violence that is required to then guarantee enforcement that's just a small part I mean, <laughs> that's just a small part that 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 little detail we can get over yeah. that yeah. but i just if i can add a recommendation the most my sort of go to book is it's uh, by alan berto called uh, order without design but it goes to this fundamental thing. Cities are labor markets, they're also land markets, right? And the demand for land and what needs what that land needs to do is going to change through time and over history. And cities have to be able to, the, the, you know, that the, the demand has to convert into physical form. Um, and, and sort of saying this is how it shall be is, is a distortion of uh, land. And, and, the, and the wonderful thing about Alan Berstow, as an aside, is that Alan Berstow worked with Le Corbusier to build Chandigarh yeah. and is now writing a book with, whose title is borrowed from Friedrich Hayek. <laughs> Order without design. Hey, it, it doesn't get better than that. That's all we can say. This is a good question. I think Pritika will probably relate to this as she's in Mumbai. Shouldn't the first stage of urban reform be to rectify and set right the land ownership records in cities. Lot of people in cities do not have proper title deeds to their property, especially in small cities. The best example of that, I think the greatest movie ever, uh, someone I know very well, Ranveer Shori was in that movie, Khosla Ka Ghosla. Delhi yeah. is the classic example of bad title deeds where one person can do anything. I mean, 20 people own the same house. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we actually refer to Kosaka Husana housing report. Um, th th there's no question, right? I mean, uh, you know, security of title, but most importantly, uh, marketability of title depends on good land records, right? So if you want to up and move uh, or if you want to buy, you know, a lot of that depends on how clear the land records are. 
And this is not just a private title. So uh, again, um, you know, Vimal Patel accept, did this fantastic work looking at land banks in, um, in Ahmedabad, right? So there are these large land banks that are owned by central government, municipal government, state government. Um, and they, they worked with the Revenue Department to pull up the land records. Right? But what we found, what, what he found and what we found in the process is that even government doesn't have a good record of the land that they have. So a lot of land is actually lying either vacant, unused, or can't be sold and repurposed just because land titles are. And then, of course, there's a lot of work that's been done, especially in Odisha and others, giving um, uh, slum dwellers um, access to land titles. But that's that's a whole other, uh, a whole other set of things. You know, the one one scam in this city, especially Mumbai, is the whole SRA. I mean, I'm. I'm telling you, that is just a can of worms. If you open that, and let me tell you, it is the most secular exercise ever. Everybody is involved in it. All religion, all political parties, all ethnicities, all castes, everything. Everyone is involved in that scam. It is the most consistent scam I have studied in my life. It is called SRA in this city of Mumbai. All right, Ruben. Property rates in tier three cities like Mysore are skyrocketing. I have to ask this to you because of NRIs buying plots as investments. It's bizarre to see empty plots area after area with no built houses. Should this be taxed separately, Ruben? What are you NRIs doing? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this NRI doesn't own anything. So, <laughs> so, so there, there's no point blaming it on me, but Look again, I, I, you know, this stuff is just to me is just fascinating. I, I, I frankly don't understand why you would buy. Uh, you know, again, it's it's this is this sense that you have in your head that there are these insane returns that you can get uh, to to pro property and so on and so forth without. It's no, it's completely uncorrelated with the macro environment, completely uncorrelated with everything else. I mean, you know, you could just as easily have been buying Netflix stock. Right. I mean, it's yeah. gone up 65,000% since IPO. So it, it's, you know, so why people have this attachment to real estate? I don't get it, but look, it's, it's emotional. It's a, it's all of those things. I mean, should you be applying taxation and so on? I mean, if you're an NRI, I don't know, but you know, I mean, the flip side of it is you've seen what Singapore has done with, uh, with, uh, with non PR non-citizens, which is, if if things get bad enough and become enough of a political problem, you, you impose a high stamp duty of as high as 65%. And hopefully that dissuades buyers. But you know, in general, I mean Singapore also has the constraint of actual constraint of land. Yeah. There isn't any land outside of that island. So I mean, given that Mysore doesn't have those kind of issues, my instinct would be. To not tinker, not over-regulate, all of those things, because once you let the state in into these sort of things, it you know it goes wrong very quickly. I can't necessarily tell you how it will go wrong, but it's very likely it will. And, and I was just going to add so to Ruben's point. It's exactly so. Singapore is constrained for land. We are not constrained for land. We have artificially constrained the formal housing market. Exactly, right? which is why. And there is asymmetric information. I know what's going to be built. I know what roads. And so, so for you know, for the average person, you watch people with access to information get really rich, right? And and that perpetuates a this thing of oh, if only I knew that information, right? 
then I'd get rich as well. And you understand it. I mean, you understand that sentiment. But we, because we have stifled the, house, the formal market, not just for housing, but many other things in so many different ways, we've now created an artificial scarcity where there are outsized returns to be made, where there are returns to asymmetric information. Um, you know, and, 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 and actually a simpler solution is just to, to, to liberalize the uh, market for housing. It's not just uh, mm-hmm. Mysore. You can go to Punjab, the GT Road, uh, the famous uh, GT Road Highway. You will have uh, NRIs from Canada and UK. That's how we, you know, Punjabis call it. Canada and UK. And they keep buying these highway properties. I don't know what's with them and highway properties. But they like highway properties. And they keep on buying them. And for no damn reason, the rates are like skyrocketing over there. It, it literally makes no sense. So I, I can actually understand. Another interesting question. Uh, organic dense cities like uh, in, in India, like Varanasi and uh, Bangalore are already congested. Um, so what uh, is uh, the actual solution to that? So someone Ruben has asked, is eminent domain the answer? Uh, again, um, not necessarily. I mean, look again. It, it 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 you've got to separate out in all of these cases what is being caused by the supply constraint, right? So this congestion that we described, for instance, in Mumbai, for instance, it, when you have only twelve percent of the land available for public use, you will get congestion. But that doesn't have to be the way things are. There is actually another way to do things. So rather than basically, you know, this is where I I worry a lot about the fact that we are going too much after the symptoms of the disease rather than trying to diagnose what is the disease and trying to get back to curing the disease rather than curing the symptom. And everything that is being described here is a symptom of a larger disease, which is at the back end. And those supply side constraints if you don't solve for those, yes, you will solve for something here and it'll show up somewhere else. You don't actually fundamentally uh, change anything if you don't actually tackle the supply side issue at its source, so to speak. So I think a lot of these are kind of upstream issues. They're plumbing issues. They're policy-related issues. They're not, you are seeing the manifestations of those problems as congestion, expensive housing, things like that. All right. So one more question. Urban Land Seeding Act destroyed urban planning. I mean, do you think it destroyed? That is the first half. Uh, And the next is, I don't know what this law is. Can you highlight three laws similar to UCLA that you would love to see scrapped? So Prithika can go for it. Ultra was implemented at a time where, so, you know, Ultra made it hard to do large, sort of acquire large parcels of land and do large township development, right? Which may have been relevant at a time where income inequality was also so much, there were very few people that could acquire such large parcels of land, right? And um, so I don't know that it made planning harder, um, but, you know, I mean, the, the, and, 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 you know, whoever needed to violate it certainly violated it. Um, what needs to be scrapped? Uh, quite a few things. Um, restrictive zoning, right? We need much, much less restrictive zoning, much more mixed-use zoning. Certainly, FSI, FAI. 
there's a lot of work yet to be done on rental housing. So there's a draft rental housing uh, uh, you know, bill, which is great. It takes into account the distortions we were talking about earlier, which is that low-cost rental housing doesn't need to be classified as hotels. But there's actually a lot of clauses within, you know, within that work that really need to be, uh, really need to be implemented. Yeah, but but again, all of these require us to go back to source and ask, okay, what is it that's actually clogging the pipe, and then start from there rather than focus on a symptom and say what is the symptom that clogs up this particular problem, and let's get rid of it. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, so before we wrap it up, uh, first Pritika, you and then Ruben. So any last closing words? Uh, first of all, this is not going to be the last podcast. So this is just one of the many times I'm going to call you guys as in when I read something you guys have written and the reports you write. I, uh, on one of the rare podcasters who actually reads reports generated by organizations like you uh, so there are we exist and we like to talk about these things so Pritika uh, uh, maybe you can have some uh, few words and then I'll go to Ruben. Um, sure no this this has been an absolute pleasure we, we love talking about cities and we've done it for you know enough years that clearly you know, we, we really care about it I think look I think the answer to a lot of the problems we're going to tackle with like I said whether it's low thoughts kind of climate change runs through cities. These aren't going to be easy problems, right? It's it's what Ruben said earlier about, you know, that because it's so hard, there's a temptation just to do the quick fixes, to look at the symptoms, not the underlying causes. Also keep in mind, this has not happened at a, at a, at certainly at a speed and then a scale, you know, so other developing countries may, may urbanize at this, um, at this pace, uh, but not at the scale of our population. And so these are hard challenges, and I'd say the more people that work in this space, um, the more important. And and the one thing that I always say, I think to study planning and to understand cities, you have to understand economics and you have to understand markets, just the basics of it, because you know that's 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 where cities come from. Um, and so my pet peeve is, you know, every planning program should have a found, strong foundation in economics. Um, Ruben, yeah, so I'm not sure. What to add other than to say, look, every aspiration that the country has ultimately depends on getting urban right. Whether it's your $10 trillion economy or a $20 trillion economy, all of that depends on getting urban right. As far as I can see, certainly there's been no uh, example anywhere in the world of people having had left cities uh, back to villages and creating economic growth out of that. So this is a non-negotiable in that sense. You have to get it right. The problem is you have a very narrow window to get it right. Right. The 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 problem with urban and especially the infrastructure side of it is that if you make a mistake in health policy or education policy, you can quickly reverse it. But if you get the Delhi Metro wrong, you are stuck with it for the next 75 years. It's very, very difficult to undo mistakes that you make in the urban space, which is why I go back to basically saying, don't have these like, you know, these knee jerk responses to immediate problems that you face. Take a very systematic and systemic view of urban because these are systems level issues. Cities are nothing but systems integrators, right? 
it is where a lot of the stuff plays out. So therefore, knee-jerk solutions are not a good idea at all. Be as thoughtful as possible. And the kind of last bit of this, which I think is intuitive, is a lot of, certainly within the practice and within our community, this is not like technology, right? I mean, most of what needs to be done, we've known how to do it and we've known how to do it for decades, right? Uh, we've known how to do street grids. As I said, whether it's uh, Mohenjo-daro or Jaipur under Raja Man Singh, they had grids in place. So this is not like we've devised some new technology that we need to uh, impress upon people and so on. So at some level, I suppose the, you know, the community that is interested in this also have to ask the question of why isn't anyone listening? Right? And I think that's an incredibly important piece of this uh, in, in addition to understanding the fact that cities are job markets. And so therefore understanding how markets function is has to be a critical part of planning, has to be a critical part of any education that people go through who in people who are interested in, in cities and so on and so forth. But ultimately, it is my very strong belief that unless you create a political constituency, you will not have any of the outcomes that you desire because at every step of the way, the instinct in the human mind is either magic bullet or run back to the villages and all your problems go away. Right? True. So we have to create that political constituency. And so that's the, you know, that's where really podcasts like yours really help, Kushal, because you know, getting the word out. I, I wouldn't call it conversion therapy, but like, you know, getting more people on board, the idea that this stuff matters and all the other dreams you have depend on this particular thing to actually play out well. I couldn't agree more. And which is why I was so, so much looking forward to this chat with both of you is, you know, there is a, there's a culture of mediocrity that is peddled in our society, especially in my my in my mind, societies that fail come up with excuses to justify their failures. Um, there's a famous line in a song written by an old Aussie rock band, Silverchair. You know, they say, you say money isn't everything. Well, I like to see you live without it, was the line. And uh, this is all, you know, your typical uncle saying, Beta paisa hato ka mail hai. real life is being satisfied. Look, I'm not stopping you from being satisfied. But this fetishization of poverty, this this romanticism of uh, urban, uh, the rural life. I mean, I don't, I have never gotten it. Societies that fetishize all the wrong things do not progress. They do not progress socially. They do not progress economically. I think a lot of India's problems stem from the lack of of this aspiration to become urbanized. And, and I, I, when I started reading all the literature that you guys sent, look, I did not know these things beyond the larger, like I'm a believer in the, the, the strength of the free markets. And when I started, you know, I'm so grateful to you sending me those emails with all the written material, which I actually went through. And I realized that literally the story of India for the next few years has to be... Uh, uh, the story of uh, urbanization. And if we don't urbanize, if we don't industrialize, we may skip a lot of uh, these buses. And, uh, and I've, you know, and I wish people realize what is at stake. We climate change is an issue, but once again, 
catastrophism is not going to get us anywhere i i i see people giving these doomsday scenarios and unfortunately the nature of social media is as a person like me who's a content creator this is something that i face a lot i'll give you an example today's podcast could have been called india's urban landscapes are terrible i could have gotten more views that way but that was not the intent of the podcast mm-hmm. the intent of the podcast was how do we reform india we have a problem but in in, in such a it, it is it is so hard to fight against these forces so once again ruben prithika thank you very much for coming and i wish you guys all the best and uh, this is an open invitation from the charvak podcast whenever a new piece of research or a report comes please share it with me i'll be more than happy to promote it on the podcast thank you thank you kushal and thank you to all your listeners and viewers Thanks so all right yes. all right guys we'll wrap it up uh, before i wrap it up please if you want to follow uh, prithika and ruben in the description of the podcast i have left their twitter handles you can also follow artha uh, global on twitter you can also go and visit their website when you go on their website you will see reports and many other documents that they have shared on the website i would urge all of you to read look the one thing i take a lot of pride with when it comes to the charvak podcast is the the i have nothing against kids uh, before somebody says kyun bachcho ki maar rahe ho nahi maar raha bhai nahi maar raha um, but uh, the giant listener viewer base of this podcast is actually 25 to 65 years old literally this is the demographic that matters because this is the demographic that is in the marketplace that is going out there so you guys should go and read these kinds of things that's why i experiment with these subjects otherwise i could have you know literally done billi rasta kaat gayi kutta kaat gaya kind of a discussion and garnered a lot of views but i don't is because i want you the viewers and the listeners to be educated about this so please keep supporting me in these endeavors like this video leave your comments you can also ask maybe if you have any follow up questions you can ask them to prithika and ruben on social media i th- i think they will be more than happy to engage with them and if you want to support this podcast please become a member you can become a member on youtube patreon wherever you are fanmo buy the merch or send your donations to upi i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye